I generally take Fridays off, and Christine and I have been blessed over the years to be able to go to family place up north, and so this past Friday and Saturday we're up north, and we had a chance on Friday afternoon to go out and play golf together. Now, Christina usually plays golf like once a year, right? So this was her annual trip to the golf course, and so we went to this it's really like a cow pasture type field and, you know, course and that kind of thing. And, and uh, I always like to say it screws up my game, but I'm not exactly sure that it's the course's fault that messes up my game. But so we, we got there and of course she got on the tee box and in, the, in, in, her, in her first swing, she hit the ball okay, but she hit it right into the one pond that's on the whole course, right? And so I've got all these wonderful instructions for her. You know, you get, you get your, that's the way you're aiming. You've got to move the ball forward in your stance. All this kind of good stuff. And so she tries another one because there's, no, there's nobody around. We're just all there by herself. She hits a second one in the water. So she starts to reach for her pocket for a third one. I said, that's enough balls in this hole. We'll, we'll hit this one a little further down. So I get on the tee box and I hit my first one. And it's all right. It's kind of at the tree, a little left, that kind of thing. Since there's nobody around, I figure I'll hit a second one. And I hit the second one in the same pond that she did, you know? And then she said, like, I'm not listening to you anymore. <laughs> you don't know what you're talking about, you know? And it just lost all credibility. You know, sometimes it really is a lot easier to talk about it than it is to actually do it, right? You know, but I had the same problem with my kid, with Ben. You know, Ben was playing college baseball. You know, he was a four-year starter at, at Gordon College. You know, and I talked to him about college sports. Now, listen... I'm not a slouch. I have seven varsity letters. I'm a three-time academic All-American, you know, in, in a couple different sports. And I talked to him about college athletics, and he's like, you don't know what you're talking about because you've never stood in the mound and had to throw a change up, you know, on a 3-2 count. You know, no credibility in his eyes, right? Because it's not the same thing. Credibility is pretty important, actually. When we come to be one to have influence, to exercise leadership, to be a resource to somebody else. It's important to have credibility. You usually don't listen to people who don't know what they're talking about. You usually don't follow people who don't seem to know where they're going. Credibility is important. The passage we're going to look at today in Ephesians 4, verses 1 through 16, and we've been working our way through the book of Ephesians, is Paul talks about what does it take for the church to be credible to the world in order to be able to fulfill its role of being the reconcilers, if you will, that God uses. You know, Ephesians is all about God putting it all back together. You know, he's taken... He's taken um, rec- God is reconciling man to himself. He's reconciling man to... To, to man as he brings Jew and Greek together in the church. He's, he's, he's bringing, summing up all of creation in Christ. He's bringing everything back together. And in the world, his agent is to be the church. And Paul talks about what does it take for the church to be credible in the eyes of the world as a reconciling agent. And the thing that he tells us is that it takes unity. The church cannot have any credibility in its role of trying to create reconciliation in the world if it's a place itself that can't seem to manage to get reconciled. It takes unity. And unity isn't just the absence of conflict, but it's the presence of 
of the loving, caring, enduring relationships that really promote healthiness. I mean, you can be at peace with your neighbors around the corner that you don't even know. Because you don't know them, you know? There's no feud with them because you don't know them. You have no history with them. But that's not what he's talking about. He's not talking about peace as the absence of conflict. He's talking about unity here that's built in deep relationship. And it takes credibility, the credibility of unity for the church to be what God wants it to be in the world. Now, I'm conscious of the fact that some of you here today are like, I don't really want to be that reconciling agent in the world. You know, I mean, I'm here for what faith can do for me. I can understand that. I can also tell you that you don't know, you don't have any idea what faith really is then. If faith is about what God can do for you, and that's the way you process it, you don't understand faith. God blesses us to be a blessing to others. And if, and if you don't want to be a blessing to others, you're probably not being blessed. And you're struggling in that journey. I'd also tell you that if, if you're really just not, you know, I, I don't want to have a part of that or whatever. I just want to, just want to come. I just want God to kind of give me what I say. I can put my life together. I can be happy and feel secure and that kind of stuff. I got to tell you, you're missing out on one of the greatest journeys. It may scare you to death, but one of the greatest journeys is to be people like Tony who step into communities they've never been before and try to be an agent of reconciliation. Or to step into your own neighborhood and to try to be an agent of reconciliation. To be a part of a church that's looking to engage its community to be an agent of reconciliation. That's powerful stuff. That's the kind of life that God wants us to be living. And it is an incredible life to live. I'd love for you to turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4 with me. Ephesians 4. We're going to look at verses 1 through 16. We'll move through this pretty quickly. You've got to see it in context. In chapters 1 through 3 of the book of, of Ephesians, Paul has been laying out what God has done in Christ and how God is reconciling the world to himself through Christ and in using the church as a part of that. In chapter 4, he turns to what does that mean for us. And if you use one of your pew Bibles, you'll find our text today on page 995. I really love it if you would follow along in a Bible. I think you'll get a lot more out of it as you look at some of the specific terminology with me as we move through pieces through this journey. Paul starts out by saying, I therefore the prisoner in the Lord. Now he is a prisoner in Rome awaiting his trial because of his faith in Christ, if you will. But he sees himself as being a prisoner in the Lord. He urges them to walk worthy of the calling you have received. If you don't get... Verse 4, verse 1, chapter 4, verse 1, you don't get the rest of the book. Because everything else in the book is talking about what does it mean to live a life that's worthy of what Christ has done for you. Husbands, when he's talking to us about loving our wives as Christ loved the church, Paul's talking about what does it mean for us to live lives that are worthy of him. Wives, when he's talking to you about submitting to your husbands out of reverence for Christ and having that level of respect and care and, and admiration for them, he's talking about what does it mean to live lives that are worthy of the calling that we've received in Christ. When he's talking about putting on the full armor of God so that we can stand against the schemes of the evil one, the ways that he wants to break us down and discourage us, he's talking about what does it mean to live lives that are worthy of the calling 
that we've been saved. When he talks about putting off the new self and putting on the new, the, the, the new self, putting off the old self and putting on the new self. That sounds better, right? Putting off the old self and putting on the new self. He's talking about what does it take to be worthy, to live lives that are worthy of the calling that we've received in Jesus Christ. It's the theme of the rest of the book. But he picks up from there. He says, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, and really it should, the, the, the Holman Christian here kind of blurs a couple of words together. It should be with, with patience and with forbearance, accepting one another in love, diligently keeping the unity of the Spirit with the peace that binds us. You see that word unity? It's not going to go away. There's one body, one Spirit. Just as you were called to one hope at your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in all. Now grace was given to each of us according to the measure of the Messiah's gift. For it says, when he ascended on high, he took prisoners into captivity and he gave gifts to people. But what does he ascended mean except that he descended to the lower parts of the earth. And I think this is a reference here to Jesus being incarnate and being a part of life on the planet, not necessarily a reference to kind of going to the spirits in Haiti, if you will, that some like to make that connection. It says the one who descended is the same as the one who ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. And he personally gave some to be apostles some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers for the training of the saints and the work of ministry to build up the body of Christ until we all reach unity, see that word again, in the faith and in the knowledge of God's Son, growing into a mature man with a stature measured by Christ's fullness. Then we will no longer be little children tossed by the waves and blown around by every wind of teaching but and by human cunning with clever... Uh, uh, let me read that again. Verse 14. Then we, will know, then, then we will no longer be little children tossed by the waves and blown around by every wind of teaching, by human cunning with cleverness and the techniques of deceit. But speaking the truth in love, let us grow in every way into him who is the head, Christ. From him, the whole body, fitted and knit together by every supporting ligament, promotes the growth of the body for building itself up in love by the proper working of each individual part. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word. Now, as we come to this text, you see the theme of unity that just runs throughout. Not only the emphasis on the one God, one spirit, one church, one faith, one Lord, one baptism, one, you know, that those things, but that, that, that we're growing into the unity of the faith and, and the unity that, that binds us together in peace. The theme is unity. And Paul is saying that in order for the church to be an agent that can go out, that God can use in the world to reconcile people to himself, this is a church that has to be unified. It has to be connected with one another. Now, there's several things that I think that, that fit into this equation for us as we look through this. First of all, is there, there is a, an essential role that the Christian characteristics that we receive from Christ play in maintaining unity. You know, if you look at the fill in this first verse, there's an essential role of the Christian characteristics in sustaining unity. Just look with me at verse 2 and 3. 
See, Paul starts out and says, listen, I got credibility. I'm living what I'm teaching because I'm a prisoner in Christ. And I'm urging you to walk a life that's worthy, to live it out in a way that's worthy of what God has done for you and what he's placed within you. And he says, and do so with all humility and gentleness, with patience, with foreboding, if you will, with, with patience and forbearance, accepting one another in love, diligently keeping the unity of the Spirit with a peace that binds us. Now, the word humility here was not a popular term in the ancient. We, we look at today and we, we, we have a way we, where we've kind of sanitized humility, and at least in the eyes of the ancient world, and we've made it a, 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 a virtue, if you will. And that's appropriate biblically, but that's not the way it was in the, in the ancient world. The word humility was put right alongside words like ignoble, like put along the same word as slavish. To be humble was to be worthless. To be humble was to be a failure. To be humble means that you had, you, 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 you had no significance, no meaning. And so those who were looked at as being people who were failures, the outcasts, whatever, those were the people who were the humble people. And they had no value. And yet God steps into the world in humility and takes on the nature of one of us in the person of his son. And he even descends in place to the position of humility where he dies in our place that we might be resurrected. And, and when Christ steps into our lives, he brings that humility to us. And humility is essential in maintaining unity. Because I got to tell you, if one group's looking down on another, it's hard to have unity, isn't it? And, and how, do, how do you achieve that humility? Well, for one thing, play golf. You go out and play golf, you'll be humble. Because you'll just realize it's not the clubs, it's not the course. It's not the wind, it's the guy holding the club. And it keeps you humble. But on a more serious note, you know, um, just watch who you compare yourself to. If you're looking at the person next to you in the pew, and we'll say, compared to them, I'm not doing too bad. I'll give myself a B plus, you know. I think I come to church more than them, and I think I read my Bible more than them, and I probably pray more than them. And, and we start, we start, feeling good about ourselves. But real humility comes when we realize that God is present with us, right? He's everywhere. So look at the person sitting next to you in the pew and, and think that it's God sitting there. Now, how do you stack up when you start comparing yourself to God? B, B plus, B minus, C plus, C minus, utter failure, Below zero somewhere? I mean, when we start comparing ourselves to the perfection of God, humility comes in. And, and, and this is where Paul's teaching that we, we all come to God the exact same way. We come through Christ. It's not like some of us got to take the high road and some got to take the low road. We all have to come through the cross. We, we stand there equal. There is no place for pride. There's a place for humility. And humility builds unity. He builds on with this word gentleness, and, and um, this is a, this, the Greek word is almost impossible to bring into English. 
They would use this word to speak of domesticated animals. Now, and, and so they would use this word to think of an element, an elephant that they could use in their workloads. Now, I've seen an elephant in the wild. We saw her, one, one of the, the only time in all the times I've been to Rwanda, we've been out to the game park, we saw, we saw an elef- elephant, a herd of elephants in the wild. And, and these animals are massive. And so the group, tribe, the group that we saw, they had a couple of small baby elephants with them. So they, they literally, as they're walk, working their way through the forest, you know, they're eating leaves off the trees. And you'd have these trees, literally the trunks were like a foot across, you know, and, and, and the elephants would just wrap their trunks around the tree and just pull the whole thing over. I mean, these are massively powerful animals. But then they can make them run around in a circus and stand up on boxes, you know? It's amazing, I mean, but that's the word. that Those animals are gentle. They've got tremendous strength that's always under control and submitted. And that's really what this word has. It's the idea of us being in perfect control of our emotions, our thoughts, our actions, and our words. That's to be gentle. We never offer a word that destroys. We always offer a word that encourages and is constructive. Think that might be helpful? Promoting unity? I can think about some instances in my home where things got a little energized. Maybe that's a nice word, right? And then there's things you kind of just say, you'd love to just dial that back. But once it's out, you can't get it back. You know, and, and then, and then there's, not, there's not unity in the home for a little season, right? Gentleness is a tremendously important in promoting all this. And then you have the idea of patience with endurance. And I don't know, do we need to say something about why we need to have patience with one another? Ever been in the line at like the Walmart and the line for 20 items or less and the person in front of you has got like 102, you know? And it's just like, you know, or the person who's just, just not driving right, they're not driving fast enough or whatever because they're playing around with their cell phone and you can tell, sometimes you just need patience. Sometimes the people who come in here on a Thursday to straighten up the auditorium need a little patience because a lot of folks just stick their bulletins into the back of the chairs and don't take them with them, thinking that, well, somebody will clean up behind me. Sometimes it just takes a little patience. And it goes on and on and on. I mean, essential qualities, right? And all of these qualities flow from love. And so God pours his love into us so that you and I can be humble, gentle, patient people who can do life together in unity. So that we can be credible to be the agents of God in the world. Then he goes on, he wants to talk about the, what, what is that unity founded on? You know, it, it's interesting. We, we are so good at identifying how we're different that we miss out on what binds us together. Look what Paul says here, beginning in verse 4. Let's just count the, the word one together. There's one body, so that's one, and one spirit, so that's two. 
Just as you were called to one hope at your calling, that's three. One Lord, that's four. One faith, that's five. One baptism, that's six. One God and Father of all. So that's seven, right? So in, in, in three verses, he's got the word one in seven times. And then if that's not good enough, he switches to the word all. So there's one God and Father of all who's above all and through all and in all. So there's one God who's in everything and we're in him and he's in us and whatever. And it's just all. And the foundation for our unity is who God is and what God's done and how God's doing it. That, that's the foundation for it. But I'm amazed at how often we in the church, as in the world, we, we are fixated on how we're different rather than how we're connected. And it breaks down unity in the body. Let me give you an example. You know, instead of seeing how we're connected to one another and, and, and working together and, we're, and we have a foundation for unity, so often we keep ourselves separated on the things that make us different. I know of a, of a couple that was involved several different places where they were involved in, in, in churches. This is a family that had been pretty successful in their careers. And with that, they lived in a pretty nice home, had some nice options and those kinds of stuff. And, and, it, and it was, it, you know, when you went there, it was, it was impressive. It was nice, a great setting. And they, they were very hospitable. Had lots of folks come to visit with them. Have them over for dinner, for barbecues or whatever, spend some time and and never did they get invited anywhere else. Because people were thinking, my house doesn't look like your house. You're different than me. So we can't have that kind of relationship. You know? And sometimes, we, well, you know, this, this person is, they know more than me, or they do more than me, or they live really far away, or we find all kinds of reasons as to why we can't be connected to one another. And Paul's saying, no, 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 no. You know, think about the, the church that he's speaking to. Some of them were Greek by background. Some were Jewish. Some were slaves. Some were free. Some were rich. Some were beyond poor. Some were male. Some were female. The list just goes on. They're different. They go, There's no way we can do church. And he says, you've got one God, one faith, one body, one spirit. You've got one God who's looking to be in all and through all. and for You've got every reason to be connected because this is who God is, what God's done, and how he's doing it. And yet, somehow or another, we find this wonderful ability to figure out why we can't be together rather than just receiving the blessing of being connected to one another and unified in what God has done. But here's the last piece, and this is the one that at least in terms of this message, just turns my buttons a little bit more than some other stuff, right? And, and, and only God would work this way. But in order to create unity, God creates diversity. In order to create unity, God creates diversity. I mean, that doesn't make really sense to us, right? I mean, if we wanted to have unity, we'd just make everything the same. You know, we, we, I got a guy in my life group. He's in director of quality control for a manufacturing plant. And they, they, their goal is to have, you know, one part out of a million come out of their plant different. The other 999,999 are exactly the same. 
So you'd call that unity, right? Because they're exactly the same. You know, and so we think, well, the, the, the way to do this, the way to create unity is just make everything the same. Make everybody the same. God said, I'm going to create diversity to create unity. Let me lead you through the text. But let's go backwards, okay? So we can see the flow of thought. Let's pick up with, with verse 16. Bring in verse 15 to flow when it says, But speaking the truth in love, let us grow in every way into him who is the head, Christ. So Christ, and from Christ, the whole body, fitted and knit together by every supporting ligament, promotes the growth of the body for building itself up in love by the proper working of each individual part. Let's take out the clause in the middle, this fitted and knit together by every supporting ligament, because I think it hides the reality here. He says, from him, from Christ, the whole body, the whole body promotes the growth of the body for building itself up in love, which is the source of unity, right? All the characteristics that promote unity, like patience and, and, and gentleness, all that flows out of love. The whole body promotes the growth of the body for building itself up in love by the proper working of each individual part. So the growth to unity occurs through the whole body. Not just the staff, not just the guy who stands behind the pulpit and you hope doesn't preach too long, but it's the whole body promotes the growth of the body in love. The way that works is when each part is doing its role properly, by, proper, by the proper working of each individual part. Well, how does that happen? Well, verse 12 tells us it's because the, the saints have been equipped or trained that the idea is really is that they've been fitted for their purpose. So the, the body has this ability to grow itself so they can be unified because each part is doing its role correctly. Well, how do you get trained or equipped or fitted so that you can do your role properly? Well, what the scripture tells us is that in verse 7, now grace was given to each one of us. And that grace flows out in verse 11 differently. So here the unity that God's creating as the unified body is building itself up because each individual part has been equipped or fitted to do its role, that happens because God originally created diversity. He gave some as apostles. He gave some as prophets. He gave some as evangelists. Some as pastors and teachers. God takes the diversity to create unity. Again, we want to let those things kind of divide. Well, you know, that's the, that's, that's the pastor's job. We'll just let him do it, right? That's the elder's job. We'll just let them do it. We'll just, that's, that's the children's ministry job. We'll just let them, we, we want to let those roles divide. God says, I created the, unit, the diversity so I can make it all whole, so make it one, so that your job is my job, and vice versa, and we're all together. Make it a work. Now, what we really want to do when we go to this text, and I'll satisfy your appetite. Just we, Who are the apostles and prophets and teachers and evangelists and that kind of stuff? We want to focus. They're just little bits and pieces in the overall cog. God, God, God has given the gifts, making people different so they can all come back together so it can work perfectly to make the body grow in unity. Diversity is created to promote unity. That's the way God works in his economy related to the church. Now the apostles here were we're a special breed. You know, uh, 
I've, I've kidded with you a couple times in my journeys to Rwanda. I've had a, ch- I had a chance to meet the Apostle Paul. N- not exactly the same Apostle Paul that wrote our book, but the Apostle Paul is a big Rwandan guy. Big, you know, not the same sense of apostle. The apostles were those who had seen Christ. They had seen the resurrected Christ. And these were people who had authority universally in the church. Whether they were in Jerusalem or whether they were in Antioch, whether they were in Philippi or whether they were in Rome, they had authority. And it wasn't just the 12 with Matthias in there and Paul, but there were other guys like Silvanus and whatever. But these are all guys who had seen Christ, seen the resurrected Christ, and they had accepted authority across the church no matter where they went. Those guys don't exist anymore. But they were essential in the early days. Then you had the prophets. These are the people, you know, we want to think about prophets as the guys who can, like they're like, they're like foretellers, you know? They're like they're spiritualized fortune tellers. They can tell you, you know, what's going to happen in the market on July 28th. That's not what these prophets are. Okay, these prophets are primarily foretellers. Think about what it was like in the life of the early church when they had no New Testament. So what are we supposed to do with the law? What are we supposed to do with this and then? And these prophets were instruments that God used to directly teach the body. And so they were foretellers, directly speaking for God. Yet yet evangelists, modern day missionaries. These are people who pick up stakes, move into a different culture, plant themselves to see the gospel spread. Then you have pastors and teachers. These are the guys who, who don't do life with the church in snapshots. These are guys who do life in the church by videotape. They see the babies born. They see them married. They watch them have kids grow into old age. They see them in videotape. These are the ones who shepherd and stay alongside and teach and train and, and move along. But But all of this diversity, these variety of roles, and a list could go on with the gift of administration, the gift of giving, the gift of encouragement, the gift of faith, and right on down. All of these gifts are given so the church can be unified. God creates diversity so we can shape one another and then grow up serving together to create wholeness in the church. And and, and here's the biggest challenge that anybody teaching this text today has including myself, is that there are many of you sitting here today who think it doesn't matter if I'm plugged in or not. It doesn't matter. I could, I could just show up a few Sundays here and there, whatever, but, but it doesn't matter if I'm plugged in. And I want to tell you in the name of this scripture, that's a lie. It's a straight lie from the evil one. It doesn't have to be Hope Chapel. Maybe you've got a home church somewhere else or whatever. But if you're not plugged in, if you're, not, if you're not engaged in relationship, you're not engaged in serving, you're not engaged in using your gifts, you're not engaged in community, engaged with the church being a reconciling agent in the world, then, then, then you just don't get it. You just don't get it. It's not just showing up, sitting in your pew, going home, nobody knows me, Nobody knows what I'm doing. That, that's, that, that is an anathema in the name of the scriptures. And that's the biggest challenge because there's many of you that's absolutely convinced that it, just, that it doesn't make any difference what you do. And that's just not true. And it never has been true in the kingdom of God. You know, it's, it's like, 
It's like having a, a four-cylinder car and you're missing a spark plug. Imagine if Rob gets back up here in a few minutes and, and, and I just steal one of his drumsticks. You know? Or if I just cut a couple of strings off of Henry's guitar. I mean, is it going to sound the same? Is it going to work the same? It's not. You know? And I know I'm being somewhat facetious, but I got to tell you, it matters. It matters. And God has orchestrated everything in the church so that we can be unified and have credibility in proclaiming his message to the world. And so Paul comes back to his question. Are we walking, living lives worthy of the calling that God has for us? That today is a personal question for each one of us. And it's a corporate question for us as a church. Are we living a life worthy of the reconciling call that God has in our lives? Let's pray together. God, you have called, and you are calling. God, let us hear your voice and change, commit, so that we might live lives that are worthy of your calling, and to be a people who are unified, because that's just the way you made us. God, I don't know exactly where that hits for all of us here today. But I know your call never changes. As you ask us to live lives that are worthy of who you are. By our faith in Christ. In whose name we pray. Amen. Amen.